Welcome to this, the fourth in the European Institute series of podcasts. Um, my name is Tim Beasley-Murray, and it's a great pleasure to welcome my colleague, Mererid Pugh-Davis, who is Senior Lecturer in German here at UCL. And we're here to discuss her recent book, Writing and the West German Protest Movements, The Textual Revolution. So, um, Mererid, your book, it takes us back 50 years ago, um, we're on the anniversary here of 1967-1968, to a time when West Germany, which is the, the, the society you're looking at, was in an extraordinary crisis. I mean, you talk about the Stern and Spiegel mainstream um, magazines that carried articles and titles on their covers. Can the revolution be stopped? Is a revolution inevitable? And this book looks at the anti-authoritarian protest protest movements that were part of that crisis. Could you tell us something about this book, where it comes from, and what the main idea behind it was? I think it's very interesting, Tim, to draw attention to the fact that it's almost 50 years now since 1968, which was such a defining moment, not only in West German culture, but in Europe and indeed globally. There are 1968s at work all over the world. And I think this 50 years anniversary is a really important vantage point now to evaluate what these movements meant what they were doing and what they still mean, I think it's far too early to tell, in fact, what they really mean or what their effect really was. I think these effects are still playing out. But I think this 50th anniversary is a very apposite moment to stop and consider this. And of course, 2017, the year in which we're speaking, is the 50th anniversary of 1967, which in my view, is the more important year in the West German protest movement. So when we talk about 1968 in West Germany, really, I think we mean 1967, because that's the moment where the protest movements, which up until that point had been an eye-catching and intellectually and politically significant and novel thing, suddenly become a mass movement. It becomes something really important and significant in public discourse. It becomes big in 1967 um, as the result of the killing of a peaceful demonstrator in at a protest in West Berlin in June 1967. So it's at this point that it becomes a mass movement. But similarly, it's almost at this point that it changes and it's almost the beginning of the end because it's really at that moment that violence as a consideration really comes to the fore in the world of the protest movements. It can no longer be ignored. The violent death of this young man brings violence front and centre into the world of the protest movements and it's never really the same again. And what you might argue are the more playful and utopian moments of protest no longer really seemed quite so funny once somebody had actually been killed. And so I think it's that kind of what later 1967 and the year, you know, the legendary year 1968 themselves see is a sort of an, an erosion of that utopian quality. So 1967, the year, the, in the 50th anniversary of which we're seeing this year, is actually the key moment in West Germany. And your book is indeed largely about 1967 or this period before 68, before this tipping into violence. It's about the utopian ideas. It's about culture above all. Could you 
tell us something about why culture is so important to these protest movements? Why is it that they're trying to bring about what they talk about as a cultural revolution, drawing on, on Maoist ideas and so on? Why is culture uh, uh, so key? That's a really interesting question, and I think... I'm going to answer it in two parts. The first part is that there was a really important interest in the 1960s, and this isn't only a West German thing, in what you might call the symbolic aspects of culture or what the um, protesters of the time might call the subjective factors of culture. So they weren't only interested in the idea of a revolution in the so-called objective factors of culture, the economic base of a society, who gets to own what, who gets to keep the money, They argued that for a revolution to be truly meaningful or successful, it had to revolutionise a lot more than that. It also had to revolutionise the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way in which we symbolise everything that we do. It had to be a subjective factor, a revolution of the subject as well as of the economic world. So that's a very important idea, I think, for understanding what 1968 was all about. And what I think we see in the West German 1967 and 1968 is a kind of a confluence, if you like, of that type of argument with something completely different, which is German cultural and literary tradition. in the German tradition, art and perhaps literature in particular had a very high I almost say ethical status. It had a very high, it, was, it had a very high value. It was considered to be a really important ethical stage. And I think that what we're seeing around 1967 in Germany is the sort of meeting of this political interest in changing the symbolic world in which we live with this kind of very prestigious literary tradition. And what I was interested in 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 this research project was looking at what happens when these two traditions or these two sets of ideas meet. And what you're seeing here in this historical moment is protesters exploring that moment and what comes out of it, what kind of artistic practices, what kind of writing can come out of this moment. Because on the one hand, of course, they rejected conventional literature, as we would understand it. You know, they weren't sitting there trying to write sonnets and, you know, sort of 10 volume novels. They wanted to be out there. They wanted to be in the street. They wanted to be changing things. They wanted to be making, they wanted to make people think and they wanted to make people act. So they certainly weren't interested in sort of the traditional idea of the writer in the garret and yet they were very interested in mobilising ideas from literature and literary tradition in completely new ways and that generates some really really interesting types of writing coming out of the 1960s in Germany and examples that I look at in this study for example are graffiti, the use of flyers and other kind of forms of writing that circulate in uh, in public but are not published in any convention sense. I also think that the use of the political slogan, the use of the statement in court, the political speech, many of these forms I think are really important and really interesting, but they haven't really often been recognised for what they are, which is a distinctive literary culture. Yeah. 
And that's that really is the, 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 the centre of the book, isn't it? The, your exploration of these cultural forms, graffiti, flyers, performances in court and all these sort of things that seem to be a rejection of high culture, this high culture that has been implicated in the post-Nazi past, this high culture that, 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 that thinks of itself as this high literary value. But on the other hand, these, these new forms of cultural expression also, you read them as complicated literary Texts. Um, perhaps let's 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 talk about one of these phenomena that, that you discuss. Um, perhaps um, graffiti would be a nice place to start. And you you talk about this extraordinary character Eifa, um, who was this prolific and technically uh, innovative graffiti artist in Hamburg. Can you tell us a little bit about your reading of Eifa's graffiti in the context of the protest movements? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think Eifa is a really fascinating um, writer of the 1960s, and of course one who has more or less completely vanished for literary posterity because you know who takes graffiti seriously you know who you know at the time nowadays of course it's different graffiti is a big commodity graffiti is a is it's a highly valued commodity it's something that attracts a lot of attention at the time nobody took it seriously it was sort of regarded as vandalism and if I could just interrupt just for a moment I think that's a really interesting point that you make in passing about Eiffel that one can the fact that he is forgotten that he was overlooked you argue is is a mark of his success in resisting commercial society and resisting commodification and if we compare that to today's graffiti artists who immediately commodify and their works, you know, are drilled, taken off walls and put in art galleries. There's a really interesting contrast there. Yes, it's a really interesting moment, I think, in the development of graffiti as a form. Of course, graffiti isn't new. Um, You know, sort of Romans practised graffiti. It's not that there is anything new about it. But Eiffel was working at a particular moment when new technologies were becoming available, like the um, aerosol spray and the marker pen. And that meant that he was able to be, as you say, extremely prolific. And his story is a fascinating one. Over just two weeks in May 1968, so at the the height of the revolts, which of course, um, because of events in France, were very much in the public eye at that time, he covers all of Hamburg in this enigmatic, mysterious, distinctive graffiti, which is not obviously political in any conventional way but I would argue is very much of that 1968 moment in that it is intervening in public life, it's making people stop and think. The effect of this graffiti which he wrote on everything, he didn't just write on walls, he wrote on pavements, on posters, on road signs, even on people. He um, went to a beauty pageant and wrote his slogans on one of the um, <laughs> on one of the contestants in the beauty pageant. He wrote on his own car. He wrote on, on the main train station at Hamburg. Um, his idea was not, well, we can't talk about his idea because I don't know exactly what he intended to do, but I think the effect of his writing was to make the passerby, the person walking along the road, not thinking about anything at all, it was to make them stop and think and to reevaluate that urban environment around them in a completely new way. One thing that he did, for example, was to write on advertising 
Um, he would write on posters advertising things and so subvert them in ways that would make a passerby perhaps stop and think, what's actually going on there? What are they trying to sell me here? What are they doing? Or likewise, he would write on road signs again in ways that would make motorists or that would make passers-by think again about what's going on here? How does this city work? Who gets who gets to say where I can go in the city and why? And so there is this kind of moment of critical reflection, I think, which is offered by Eiffel's graffiti, which I think is absolutely characteristic of the most interesting forms of this protest writing in the 1960s. And it's also, at times, very funny. And I think that's something that we often disregard, I think, in our thinking about the 1960s, that this is a at times, not always, but this is at times a playful culture, a comedic culture. Um, there was a real interest in using playful principles as well as very kind of serious political thinking in order to try and change society. Um, one point also that you make about these, these forms of cultural expression is by being immediate and ephemeral like graffiti that could be scrubbed off, you know, one, written up one day, scrubbed off the next, they attack both the serious idea of high art as something timeless on the one hand, and on the other hand, commodity culture, which says that, you know, things have to have a value and so on. I think that's a really interesting point, that the very, the very form of, of something like graffiti that is there one day and gone the next is itself critical and is itself radical. Yes, I think that some of the political writers in a more traditional sense of the 1960s were very preoccupied with this problem that no matter how good their piece of engaged writing was, their novel or their play or their short story, it would always remain a commodity. So whether or not they wished it to be supportive of capitalism, it would always be supportive of capitalism simply by, you know, by virtue of being a commodity. And this was a problem that exercised some of the writers of the time greatly and they sort of looked for different ways of trying to sort of undermine this double bind that they were in, that they wanted to critique the society they were in, but everything they said ultimately seemed to work to support it. And writers of the time tried different methods to try and tackle this dilemma as they see it, but I think it's these ephemeral forms like graffiti which I think perhaps achieve that end best. They managed to say something really significant but they escape posterity. One fantastic example you give of that is a collection of texts produced by what seems to be the absolute radical end of this anti-authoritarian movement, Kommune 1, or K1, um, which uh, they entitled Klaumich, Steal Me, right, <laughs> which refers to the practice of, you know, anti-authoritarian uh, members of the movement who would steal things from bookshops. And I think that's, that's wonderful in a way. Yes, this was a really important compilation of work by this um, sort of subversive collective that was based in West Berlin, they had to negotiate, I think, a very difficult path between their very kind of subversive anti-authoritarian origins and their status in pop culture because they became so successful as a protest collective that everybody was interested in them and they had a very big presence in the media and so they had to sort of negotiate a very tricky path between their anti-authoritarian inclinations on the one hand and their status as a pop culture commodity on the other and Ultimately, this grouping didn't really survive all that long. It lasted 
however you measure it, at best a couple of years for precisely this reason. It simply couldn't maintain that position, being all things to all people. But it's um, it's very interesting, that, and I think its most interesting work came early on, before it was being commodified and before it had really become... Um, it had really become that they had become a media sensation because they were a media sensation. They were household names in their time. I think their more interesting work comes before then. But at the same time, they were interested in making use of the media. They were certainly not shy of the media or resistant to being taken up by the media because, of course, the more media exposure they could achieve, the more they were able to get their ideas out into the public space. And, of course, they needed to make a living as well you know they had to get money from somewhere to live and this was a way of making a living while also drawing attention to their own work so there it certainly isn't a simple oh you know being popular is bad and being unknown is good it's a much more complex negotiation and staying with um, k1 one of the chapters of your book deals with this extraordinary affair which starts off with these group bunch of flyers that they produce and then becomes a media event it's trial the trial of of, of the commune and the trial of the participants in this, which is staged as a performance and becomes almost, you're sort of arguing, a form of, of Dada or situationist art in itself. Could you tell us a little bit about these May flyers and about the trial that results that you read so effectively as a sort of interactive work of art with the media? Yes, by all means, I think this is another really fascinating case and one which is a little bit better known in cultural history because it has left more traces for posterity. This group called Comuna Eins, or Commune One in English, was founded in late 1966, early 1967. And its aim was, on the one hand, to experiment with alternative lifestyles in pursuit of what we've called the subjective revolution, the idea that you need to be a different kind of subject, a different kind of person to be truly free. And its other aim, of course, was to stage spectacular and subversive interventions in the public space. And one by now their best known action was in May 1967 they wrote a group of four flyers which they then distributed in public and all these four flyers were responding to very recent public, very recent well known events. The first of them was a tragic fire which had taken place in Brussels just a few days previously in which hundreds of people lost their lives and of course this um, shocking event had attracted a great deal of media attention. What Commune One does with this um, piece of current affairs is to align it with the Vietnam War, which is, was, of course, going on at the same time and was the catalyst, if you can talk about one particular catalyst, probably the one most particular catalyst for the West German protest movements. Commune One kind of put these two very apparently very different contemporary concerns together, the tragic fire in Brussels and the um, shocking war in Vietnam. And they write a series of flyers which bring these two things together. And what these flyers are suggesting is they make a number of suggestions. They suggest that essentially that the fire in Brussels can be, they, they kind of imagine or pretend that the fire in Brussels was an act of arson in protest against the Vietnam War. So they 
present it. They kind of write this imaginary scenario about how it's an act of protest against the Vietnam War, which absolutely was not true. It was simply a, a tragic accident. But this is an idea that they were playing with. And then they sort of write about it as an act of protest in different discursive forms. So one of the flyers mimics a newspaper report um, saying that you know this is the work you know this is the work of political arsonists another one kind of picks up the discourse of advertising and says hey come and look at this this is an amazing advert for the Vietnam War which is the ultimate consumer commodity another one seems to be quite a traditional call for action and considering arson and the other one is very difficult to describe. You might describe it almost as a kind of a, a concrete poem. But taken together, this group of texts was read as being extremely disturbing. And it was read by the authorities as a possible case of incitement to arson. If you read these documents together, um, the authorities thought that they could be read as an incitement to arson for anti-war protesters to actually commit arson in protest against the Vietnam War. And therefore, two members of the were charged and they had an extensive trial which took place in 1967 and 1968 which was exactly it, it was an ideal outcome for them because of course it gave them a public stage to talk about their ideas on the one hand but on the other hand to make the authorities look ridiculous they were very interested in challenging the authorities in any forum they could and of course the idea of clogging up the courts with a lot of kind of subversive time-wasting nonsense was exactly what they wanted to do so they appeared in court and misbehaved um they wore bright, colourful, strange clothes. And you have to remember in 1967, this was before the hippie era. This was before it was conventional for young men to have big hair and colourful clothes and apparently sort of more feminine looking clothes and, and so on. They caused a real sensation simply with their appearance to the extent that one of them was refused entry to the court because the um, official on the door said, oh, you can't come in here. He couldn't imagine that a defendant, that is a participant in this very formal legal procedure, could turn up looking so outlandish and extravagant. And that's the starting point, if you like, of the ways in which they try to undermine and subvert the legal process in this trial. And, and I mean, this is just one example of the many that you, you, you use here, but this is, this is serious nonsense, if you want. And taking the clothes, a point that you make, which I think is really nice, is, is, is the way in which their ludicrous garb, in fact, you know, parodies or satirises the ludicrous garb of the judges who are there in their hats and their robes and so on. That's right. That's something that they comment on. They comment extensively on the appearance of the other participants in the trial and they point out that, you know, some of you know the judges have sort of little caps and, you know, different different members of the judiciary if they appear as they appear in court have different types of gowns with different kinds of trim on them and so on. And by drawing so much attention to the appearance of the characters, if you like, in the trial, they make it look like a stage play. They present it. I don't think this, this probably wasn't their original intention to go in and say, let's make this look like a stage play. But that increasingly became the outcome was that elements of performance art or elements of what the um, defendants called the theatre of the absurd actually come into it. And by making, by drawing attention to what you might call the theatrical aspects of the trial, the theatric 
the theatrical aspect of a court. Of course, this was subtly undermining it because if it's a theatrical performance, its fictionality, if you like, its lack of truthfulness is subtly highlighted. And of course, that's what a court is interested in doing, isn't it? A court is interesting, interested in finding out what is true. It's all about the pursuit of truth. Theatre, on the other hand, almost by definition, is not about offering one clear, immutable truth. It's about exploring performance and it's about exploring fictional states. And so I think this trial was very effective in mobilising the... Um, some ideas about theatricality in order to challenge the idea that the court could come up with the whole truth. Now, there's so much in this book, and we've we've just scratched the surface of it. There's uh, extraordinary material on, on anti-Vietnam War poetry, on the, the blindness in, and the anti-authoritarian and protest movement to gender, all these sort of things. There's an incredible reading of, of, of someone who's, who's up in court and defecates in court, and you read that as this, once again, a sort of subversive theatrical performance. Perhaps, but perhaps we can come to the end of the book and some of the conclusions um, that you come to. Now, you talk about, in a sense, the legacy of this form of anti-authoritarian, anti-aesthetic, aesthetic, if you want, in much more conventional-seeming literature like uh, Zeebald much later in the 90s. But could we perhaps talk about protest movements today? Can you see any legacy of this Dadaist, situationalist, playful, subversive, creative uh, uh, protest activity in today's uh, uh, protest movements? What can we learn 50 years on from what people were up to in, in, in 67, 68 in West Germany? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think in some ways, I think it's too early to tell what, I don't think we can yet say precisely what the legacy of this period of protest was. But it is certainly, as I said at the beginning, a very interesting vantage point from which to look at the present as well. And I think there are a lot of things that people today would recognise and concerns that they would share with the protesters of the 1960s, what we nowadays call globalisation, the role of the media media in politics, the relationship between politics and other vested interests in society. All of these things remain of concern today, of course, to many people. Um, and I think in terms of the methods that the 1960s used, I think, again, there are things that people today would recognise, the use of the slogan, the use of the eye-catching, playful, subversive demonstration, the use of graffiti, the use of the catchy slogan, uh, the the attempt to use the media as a, as, a, as a platform for one's concerns. All of these things are things that I think we recognise today. But of course, there's a whole, there's a different dimension today in the existence of digital culture and everything that you can do on the internet, which in some ways is very reminiscent of these 1960s practices, you know, sending out a tweet, a short, pithy statement is not a million miles away from the graffito or from the political uh, from the political statement. But in other ways, it absolutely transforms that aspiration to make a short, pithy statement in that it go it can go worldwide in a second. And it's not ephemeral. I think that's a really big difference. I think what's really interesting about a lot of the material I looked at in the 1960s is that it's that it was ephemeral it was about being in the moment and it was a a kind of writing that was for the moment and about a particular moment um 
I would say that digital protest culture is fundamentally different because its posterity is different. It will never go away. It will always be preserved. It has an archive. It has traces. It has a kind of a, a visible history, if you like, which I think makes it very different in character. That and the fact that it's global in ways that the protesters of the 1960s, I think, could barely even imagine. Rarid, thank you so much. I think your your book is a, a fitting archive for the ephemerality of, of the 1960s uh, uh, protest movements and their cultural production. We've been talking about writing and the West German protest movements, the textual revolution, um, with Mererid Pugh-Davis. Thank you. Thank you.